The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, good morning, Ecclesia on the west side. How's everybody doing this morning? You guys good? Yeah? So, my life has been a little crazy, let's just say, over the last uh, eight weeks. Uh, my name is Wayne. Uh, I am the new guy on staff here. <laughs> uh, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, I feel so welcome. Um, uh, it's, it's been a little nuts. I was telling somebody that I think I've flown more in the last six weeks than I have in the last six years combined. Uh, yeah, I don't usually fly. I know some of you probably do, but uh, that's been crazy. I... And if you had told me nine weeks ago, somebody had come to me and said, hey, I bet that you're going to be back on staff with Ecclesia, because I used to work here uh, between 2009, 2012. If you're going to be back on, on staff with Ecclesia, I would have said, oh, I'll take some money in my life right now. Like, let's take that bet. And here we are, right? So, and if you had come to me on Monday of last week, six days ago, and said, I'll bet that you're going to be preaching at the West Side. I'd said, yeah, I need some money in my life. I'll take that bet. And here we are. So you know how it goes. Like Chris calls on Wednesday, I think, and says, hey, we're going to be doing a series and we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be a people of great hope. Have you got anything to go with that? Yeah, yeah, I do. So uh, yeah, I would have taken that bet and I would have lost. But uh, I can't tell you how excited I am to be here with you today and to be coming home uh, to Houston and to Ecclesia. Uh, please pray for me and my family because uh, we're still trying to sell a house in Jackson, Mississippi. Anybody, any buyers, let me know. I got a deal for you, you know, just this much on your commute, I promise. Um, but uh, I can't wait for my family to get here so that you can meet them. I promise they look way better than I do. So you'll, you'll enjoy them being here. Uh, but yeah, Chris called this week and said, hey, like we want to start uh, unpacking this idea of what does it look like for us to be a people of great hope? Uh, So we want to take some time and explore that. And I want to tell you a little bit about me and where I uh, came from, uh, because it actually connects to this idea of how I understand that word hope. It's so loaded. It's so powerful. Uh, But what what does it mean? So I uh, was actually born north of Denver in Fort Collins, Colorado. Anybody ever been to Fort Collins? Anybody? Yeah, for you. So anybody that has, you know how beautiful it is, how amazing And when we lived in Colorado, we were a part of uh, First Baptist Church there in Fort Collins. And it wasn't just uh, me and my family. It was aunts, uncles, both sets of grandparents, both sets of aunts and uncles, cousins. It was a family affair when we would go to church, everybody. And then we'd all go to lunch after. Uh, It was a thing. My dad was a deacon there. My mom taught uh, preschool, Sunday school lessons, all that kind of stuff. So like we were, we were fully invested. We were in. Um, And I remember when I was 10, the night that I came home from school and we sat down for dinner and dad breaks the news that he got a job in Texas City and we're moving to Houston. And I was a wreck. You know, the only thing I knew about Texas was what I had seen in John Wayne movies. And I was like, dad, this is a terrible idea. You know, (laughs) like... I don't, I don't know how to ride a horse. I have no cowboy boots. I don't have spurs. I don't have a gun. I don't, I, if I saw a rattlesnake, I wouldn't know what to do, you know. And then we quickly got here and I figured out, oh, this is a major urban city, you know. I was 10. I didn't know any better. Uh, and I quickly fell in love with it and was like, oh, yeah, I like this place. Um, but we kicked the church side of things up a notch when we got here. So when we got here, 
My parents enrolled us in a private Christian school, and it was the kind where you had Bible class, and if you wanted to pass Bible class and be eligible to play sports, you had to memorize scripture. So I was like, well, I, I like playing football. I like playing basketball. L bring it, let's go. So uh, we, kicked, we kicked that up a notch. And so I, I found myself spending a lot of time in gatherings or worship services or listening to sermons and messages. And what I subtly started to pick up on is that no matter what the person got up and talked about on Sunday or Wednesday at chapel or whatever it was, no matter what they talked about, it always ended with this invitation. And what would happen is the lights would go down low, they'd play some music, and then they'd get up and they would say something along the lines of, if you don't know for 100% sure what's going to happen to you when you die, if you don't know for certain that you're going to go to heaven when you die, you can come forward right now, we're going to pray a prayer, and you can know that you're going to go to heaven when you die. Like, that's essentially what every invitation every message every time it ended with that anybody anybody ever like been there know what i'm talking about yeah and what i no one told me this but what i started to subtly pick up on was when we talked about hope or you'd throw that word out hope essentially what we were offering and the hope we were inviting people into didn't actually pertain to what's happening right here and now it was way more about what happens in the afterlife. And again, nobody, nobody told me that. Nobody came out and said that. But that's what I started to pick up on. And so if I, if I had moments or experiences where I felt lonely or I felt ashamed or I felt guilt or I saw things that were happening in the world, I'm like, that's not right. I didn't feel like there was any hope for that. It was all, well, like I, I said a prayer and I signed a card and now like the afterlife's good. So like, I don't know what to do with right now. But I took a bet with uh, my high school coach. There's a theme in my life of losing bets, if you haven't figured this out. Because uh, when I was expressing my own frustration and boredom with church and this idea of God or following Jesus, uh, he was saying, no, there's, there's way more to it than that. And so we took a bet. He said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna read through the Gospel of John together and every time that we hear Jesus talking about doing something, we're gonna to try to do it. Or if we see him acting a certain way, we're gonna to try to do that. And he said, I bet you, if you do this, you're gonna find out that Jesus has way more to do with what's happening right here and now. I was like, you're on, man, let's take that bet, right? Uh, and I lost. So, um, and now it's so funny to me to think that I'm in a space where having conversations with people about who Jesus is and what he wants to do in this life here and now that is so profound, so real, so present that there is no power, there is no darkness, there is no principality, there is nothing in heaven, earth, or hell that can extinguish or rule out that life that he offers us. That's what he's talking about. And it was, it finally clicked for me whenever we got to John 17. And there's a small verse that, where Jesus says, and this is eternal life, which every time I heard that, I always thought of, hey, that's the afterlife. But he says, and this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And all of a sudden it clicked like, oh, this, I can actually, I can actually begin to experience that here and now, and it can carry over for all eternity, that that's the kind of life that God offers us. It's not about, just about what happens in the afterlife. 
So what I want to do today is actually take some time and go into the scriptures and look at, hey, if we're gonna be a people of great hope, what part do we actually play? What does that look like? What does that mean for us? So I wanna go to a passage in the scriptures in Exodus chapter three. And if you've got your Bible, you wanna go ahead and turn there and open that up. We're gonna be spending some time there. But just to give you a little bit of the backstory for what's happening, Exodus opens with the people of Israel living in Egypt. And they've been living in Egypt for about 400 years. But they've been living as slaves. They were building uh, the pyramids, they were building the storehouses that the kings of Egypt were taking all of the fruits of the labor of those slaves and storing it up. And if you know it, remember anything about anytime you've been to the museum, you've seen things on ancient Egypt or you've watched the you know, National Geographic or whatever, you know that they stored up a lot of stuff. They stored up a lot of gold and it was immaculate, it was beautiful, it's amazing. But those Egyptians were way more invested in what's gonna happen in the afterlife. And so these slaves were in a place where they're asking, hey, does anybody care about what's going on right now? Is this, is, does anybody have anything to say about the fact that I'm oppressed and I'm in slavery? And if you ask the Egyptians, their priests, their kings, their people, their slave drivers, they would say, of course, the gods have ordained this. The gods have made this so that some people are owned and used and others are not. But what we find is a completely different story. And so that's the story, that's the dialogue that's going on in Exodus chapter three. And we'll start in verse one. And this, this is a passage that for me, I, uh, we decided to name our son Moses. So these stories in the last six years, I, I find myself revisiting these a lot. But we're gonna start with verse one. And it says, now one day, when Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, he guided the flock far away from its usual pastures to the other side of the desert and came to a place known as Horeb, where the mountain of God stood. There, the special messenger of the eternal appeared to Moses in a fiery blaze from within the bush. Moses looked again at the bush as it blazed, but to his amazement, the bush did not burn up in flames. And Moses said to himself, why is this bush not burning up? I need to move a little closer to get a better look at this amazing sight. When the eternal one saw Moses approach the burning bush to observe it more closely, he called out to him from within the bush. And the eternal one said, Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, I'm right here. And the eternal one said, don't come any closer take off your sandals and stand barefoot on the ground in my presence, for this ground is holy ground. I am the true God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A feeling of dread and awe rushed over Moses. He hid his face because he was afraid he might catch a glimpse of the true God. And the eternal one said, I have seen how my people in Egypt are being mistreated. I have heard their groaning when the slave drivers torment and harass them, for I know well their suffering. I have come to rescue them from oppression, from the oppression of the Egyptians, to lead them from that land where they are slaves and to give them a good land, a wide open space flowing with milk and honey. 
The land is currently inhabited by Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The plea of Israel's children has come before me, and I have observed the cruel treatment they have suffered by Egyptian hands. So go, I'm sending you back to Egypt as my messenger to the Pharaoh. I want you to gather my people, the children of Israel, and bring them out of Egypt. And I love this. Because what we see is that God is saying, I am the God who hears the groaning and the cry of the oppressed, the tormented, the lonely. And that is not the way that I set things up. That is not the way that I order the world. And then he steps in and invites Moses to participate in this. That word groaning is a, is a really important word. It's similar to the word for crying or crying out. And there's this principle in the ancient Near East, which is where this text comes from and the people to whom it was written. And it's, it's called the principle of the first mention. It basically means that when you would hear a word, you would remember, where's the first time I've heard that word? or what passage or what story was the first time that word was mentioned. And this word for groaning, the first time it shows up in the scriptures is back in Genesis when Cain kills his brother and he says, and God says to him, I hear the cry of your brother's blood crying out from the ground. So when you would hear that, you'd go back. It's similar to the way Marvel does movies, right? So if you go to see the Avengers Infinity War, they spent 10 years telling the story of Iron Man and Black Panther and the Incredible Hulk and all these folks so that when you're sitting in that movie and one thing happens, oh, that was in the first Iron Man or that was in the third one or that was in this one and you know there's all this context and there's all this stuff going on. By the way, we have the advantage of being on this side of things like Isaiah and Revelation. So when you read passages in those stories that say like descriptions of heaven, there will be no more crying. It's the same word. It's saying there will be no more slavery. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more murder. It's calling back to passages like this. It says, this is what God is about. Ecclesia, if we're gonna be a people of hope, it's about orienting ourselves and the way we see the world to see that God is about abolishing slavery. God is about abolishing loneliness and guilt and shame and depression. And he is actively involved in that. That is the future of humanity. That's what he's inviting us to step into. And it's interesting because when you look a little closer at this passage, there's something really interesting about the whole bush and the way it, it pans out. Because if you notice, the description of it is that it was on fire but it wasn't being consumed. You also notice that God doesn't speak out to Moses until he approaches the bush. It was actually Moses' curiosity about, oh, what's going on over there? I think I need to go check this out, which initiated this whole conversation of, I want to set an entire nation free. So if you think about it, and that bush was on fire, but it's not being consumed. And God waited for Moses to approach it. The question I ask is how long had that bush been burning? Was it a couple hours? You know, 
And God's over there saying like, man, when is Moses gonna notice? Like, it's been two hours, right? Like, come on, Moses, I'm over here. There's a bush on fire. Like, like get with the program. Or what we know about Moses is he had been living in that land for 40 years because he had actually tried to get involved in liberating his people and it didn't end well. And so he fled because he murdered someone. Like, I wonder, had that bush been burning for 40 years? Or what if these people have been in slavery for 400 years? What if that bush had been burning the whole time? What if somebody else saw the bush, walked up to it, and then said, no thanks. (laughs) I'm going to go back to climbing a mountain, or I'm going to go back to shepherding my flock, or whatever it was. How long had that bush been burning? It's a great question because what we know is God is not about the way that that structure, that system was ordered and he was about their freedom the whole time. You know, when I finally realized, um, it was, there was a moment after I'd taken that bet with the baseball coach at school where I woke up one morning and I thought, oh, he tricked me. Like, I, th- I think I'm a Christian. I think I'm a follower of Jesus, right? And this wasn't what I set out to do. And I had this moment where I realized, man, I have been so immersed in memorizing scripture, going to church, all this kind of stuff, but I was so disillusioned by it that I essentially was, would have walked away. And I remember having this moment, this conversation with God where I was like, God, that's really messed up. Like, God, what do you, you should do something about this. You ever had that conversation with God? <laughs> and I remember hearing almost immediately, you know, it's funny you say that. Uh, I think you should do something about that, right? And almost this sense of like, I've just been waiting for you to figure this out, right? I've been waiting for you to get involved. Ecclesia, there is a God who wants to set people free and has uniquely placed us in proximity to these people. And there are bushes on fire waiting for us to see it and approach and engage and say, hey, there's a different voice. There's a God who loves you. There's a God who wants to set you free. So as we think more about, okay, if I'm gonna actually begin to see these these bushes that are burning all around me, the shrubs that are on fire, what do I do when I get there? There's There's another passage I wanna take us to, and it's in John chapter 20. And this is one of those that, I can't tell you how many times I've read this, how many times I've gone over this, but in the last six months, it has just jumped out to me and it has stood out and it's become so profound and so powerful that it's, it's starting to shape the way I see so many things and so many conversations. But what we find is in John chapter 20, Jesus has just been crucified and he's just been resurrected and he's appeared to some of the women that were following him in a garden And the disciples are in a place where they've just witnessed their leader, their friend, the person that they signed up to follow, give their whole lives to. They've just witnessed him be brutally murdered. And they're in a place of wondering, is the same thing about to happen to me? And so we pick up in John chapter 20, verse 19. And it says, on the same evening, Resurrection Sunday, the followers gathered together behind locked doors in fear that some of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were still searching for them. So notice here, where in Egypt, there were other people oppressing 
and enslaving, here in their fear, they're locking the doors and saying, it's not safe. We're gonna build a cage for us. And it's designed to keep other people out, but they're essentially setting the parameters of their own enslavement. They're locking the doors. And it says, out of nowhere, Jesus appeared in the center of the room and he said, may each one of you be at peace. As he was speaking, he revealed the wounds in his hands and sighed. This is the God who's well acquainted with their grief and their suffering, the one who's heard their cry. And for any of you here, if you're wondering, God knows your pain and he's present with you in it. He's not aloof, he's with you. So he shows them the, hand, the wounds in his hands inside. The disciples began to celebrate as it sank in that they were really seeing the Lord. And Jesus said, I give you the gift of peace. In the same way the Father sent me, I am now sending you. And now he drew close enough to each of them that they could feel his breath. And he breathed on them. Welcome the Holy Spirit of the living God. You now have the mantle of God's forgiveness. As you go, you are able to share the life-giving power to forgive sins or to withhold forgiveness. And that idea of you now have the power to forgive sins or withhold it has just leapt out at me. It's just sunk in and it's beginning to reframe almost the almost everything the way I see everything. And I think for us, if we're going to be the people that live with a great hope, that we understand there's a part for us to play and it's to announce and proclaim that all your sins are forgiven. All of them. Yes, that one. All of them. And it's, it's a little scary to think, if I'm honest, that with that also comes the power to withhold forgiveness. I don't know about you, but that scares me. And I don't wanna get to the end of my life and be the person who has withheld forgiveness. I wanna learn and figure out what does it look like for me to be the one that steps in and says, I forgive you. All your sins are forgiven. Let's see, if you hear nothing else, hear this. All your sins are forgiven. So there's four things that I think that we can do to practice this, to begin to live into this, to begin to be a people who are those messengers who step in and say, you are forgiven, you are loved. And I think it honestly, for, for some of us, is gonna start with being willing and able to forgive ourselves. I don't know about you, the hardest person for me to forgive is so often myself. Because I tell myself I knew better, or at least I should have. That's a hard thing to do. And what I've started to do is to try to take two moments out of the week where I stand in front of the mirror and I lock eyes with that person in the mirror and I'm so meticulous, like I'll, I'll focus on the left eye and lock in and just look that person in the mirror and say, I forgive you. 
It's powerful. It's weird. I'll tell you. It's awkward. The first time you do it, you're like, man, is anybody looking around? Is there like any camera? Like, this is just weird. But to begin to lean in and understand, we have that power to forgive ourselves. And that we may not experience some of God's grace and forgiveness if we're not willing to practice this. uh, Our team, our staff here is really into the Enneagram. Anybody familiar with the Enneagram? So I I picked up a book on the Enneagram this past week and I read the whole thing. I was just like, okay, I don't wanna be out of the loop. I don't wanna be in a conversation and somebody says like, oh, I'm a one and he's a seven and you're a six and like, what are you? And I'm like, I get a four at Chick-fil-A. Like, I don't know, like, is that that what we're talking about? Like, I'm I'm a four, you know, so. um, But I've been reading about it and one of the things that I picked up this week that I think is so brilliant and I'm trying to figure out how to put this into practice is for type ones on the Enneagram, their inner critic is so prevalent, is so loud. That voice that steps in and says, you knew better or you can do better or whatever it is. And what they talked about in the book was name that voice, name that critic. Because what happens when you name it is it demystifies it, it robs it of its power. It doesn't, that voice is never gonna go away Right? You're not gonna be able to turn down the volume, but it gives you that chance to say, oh, I know you. I'm not gonna listen to you. You're dead to me. So I've been thinking, like, what am I gonna name this voice? Right? Like, it'd be kind of fun to be like, oh, hi, Bob. <laughs> You're back. <laughs> You're dead to me. I'm not listening to you. But then I'm like, oh, no, it'd be a lot more fun to be like uh, Cruella DeVille, maybe. Um, Jafar, anybody? Yeah. <laughs> Scar or Megatron. Like, that'd be kind of fun. <laughs> Uh, Agent Smith, you know, like, but we, we can have a lot of fun with it, but I think there is this practice to understand, hey, there is a voice that is the accuser, which is, if you look at the word for devil in the scriptures, it's the same word we get diabolical from. It literally means the slanderer, the accuser. It's that voice that comes in and says, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not this, you're not that, or you are this, you're always that. When you begin to recognize that voice and say, nope, I know that voice. But I also know another voice that says, you are loved, you are forgiven, you're accepted just the way you are. There's something about that that gives us the power to be able to forgive ourselves. And I know some of you may be like, yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. This is part of the power of the story we just looked at. So Moses literally was a murderer. Can you imagine the inner critic that's in his voice? Oh, you wanna go lead the people out of slavery? Remember what happened last time you got involved? You sure you wanna go down that road? There is hope for you to overcome that critic. That voice will not go quietly into the night, but the power to say, I'm not listening to you. I forgive you to yourself. will put that voice at bay. Maybe for us, The second thing we can do is actually to go to someone and say, will you forgive me? And that is a hard and scary place to live sometimes. Because you know the fact is they could look at you and say, nope. Which is also why I'd say, hey, spend some time practicing, uh, looking in the mirror and saying, I forgive you. But there's something really beautiful and powerful when we become the people who initiate and say, I know I've hurt you, I know I've wronged you. 
but I don't want that to hold anything against us. Will you forgive me? There's something so freeing and beautiful and powerful about that. Maybe for some of us, and this may may even be more scary for some of us than the last one, is to go find the person who's wronged us or hurt us and to look them in the eye and say, I forgive you. And then lastly, I think the space where it would be amazing for us to step into to be the people known as this. So there's the the diabolical, the slanderer. The word for angel is literally messenger. So when God says to Moses, I want you to be my messenger to Pharaoh, that's what he's inviting us into, is to step in and be that voice. So what would happen if we became the people that when we hear guilt or shame or loneliness coming out in people's conversations, that it looks to us like a burning bush? That's not supposed to be there because that's not the way that God set up this world. That's not the way that God would intend this. And we see it as the moment to step in and be the messenger and say, you're forgiven. Ecclesia, I believe and I know there are bushes on fire in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our offices, at the gym. Literally, the shrubs are on fire everywhere what would happen if we became the people that saw those moments and saw that's a moment where God wants to step in and proclaim forgiveness and peace. And we became the people that said, I don't know why, but God invites me into this. And I get to be the one who announces to you, all your sins are forgiven. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful and astounded by your love and your grace and your mercy for us. It doesn't make sense. So many times it doesn't compute. And we ask that you would give us grace in order to receive it, in order to accept it. That you would give us the ability and grace to forgive ourselves in those moments and spaces where we know we've done something wrong. Will you give us the grace to forgive others and to ask for forgiveness? And will you give us eyes to see and curious hearts to notice the guilt and the shame that comes up around us and the courage to step in and proclaim your message of hope and forgiveness and grace in those moments? We just thank you for your love. And we ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.